0: Hey everybody, this is Harry Caruso and John Michael Timburo from Car Wash Advisory. And today we're going to be talking about closing timelines, purchase agreements, and purchase contracts.
1: This is always a fun one. I know uh, everybody asks, everybody has different opinions on how long it should be, how short it should be. So I think it'll be interesting to get into what, I guess, what we see as an overwhelming majority as we go through different processes, right? Whether it's Small washes, you know, big portfolios, but more or less, they all have enough similarities that I think we can, you know, generalize and cover the whole gamut. Certainly. And I'm excited
0: about this one, John Michael, because this is something that it's very hard to get objective precedent data on. So as a car wash owner and a seller, when you're faced with, is this a good contract? Is this a good offer? Is this a reasonable timeline? Hopefully we can shed some light as to what is reasonable, what is fair to expect, and what should be expected by both
1: sides. Definitely, definitely. I think a good place to start is rather than before we start to dissect everything is get into, I guess, the overall theme, right? So from, you know, the moment that I get my LOI signed in hand, happy with the high level material terms, and you know, it's it's now day zero, right? Realistically, from day zero till the day that I have all the money in my bank account, how long does it usually take, would you say? So from the highest of levels,
0: honestly, somewhere in between four and six months. From start to close. And just to be clear for our viewers, we're talking about after not only offers are received or an offer is received, but also one that's acceptable, workable, and to both parties,
1: agreement. For sure. So this is a move forward from that initial offer. Exactly. Exactly. And that's, I think that number will surprise people because I think everyone's sitting here thinking that, you know, the LOI is sort of that milestone. And it's once I have that in place, it's we're, we're there, right? And the reality is, is we're not. Right. There's still a lot of work to do. Absolutely, John Michael. And for those who
0: don't know, a LOI is shorthand for? Letter of intent. A letter of intent. And that is basically
1: the earliest form of an offer. Yes. It's typically, you know, we'll say one to three or four pages, depending, you know, if it's a private equity group, usually there's a a little bio on the first page about the firm, stuff they've done before, their track record, right? They're trying to sell you on them. Um, And then the following pages are all, you know, what we call the material terms, right? So it's all the... You know, the, the high level things that they want to make sure that, you know, themselves and you as a seller are on the same page for um, so that they know that if they do decide to move forward, you know, everything that I guess hasn't been outlined to date is usually, you know, I'll say minute details as much as they are important. It's just usually people are, you know, a lot more agreeable on those things. Right. So the goal of that is just to outline, you know, again, in that that uh, I guess defined, you know, four pages is, is everything that you would want to know. That is sort of the deal breaker before you actually intend to put in the, the work to, to get the deal done.
0: Okay. So, John Michael, why does it take four to six months? Why does it have to take this long? And why can't it take less time?
1: Yeah, it's it's a really good question. And I think it's a it's a question that, you know, a lot of people they don't know the work that goes in, right? And and as we always say, it's really easy to get an LOI and to bring, you know, to bring the, the paper forward. I mean to get a group to say, hey, here's all these details of what we're going to do for you. Oh, by the way, though, it's not binding and we're not committing to it. I mean, again, it's superficial, right? It's more of just an indication that they're at the table and they want to put in more work, right? So, you know, what happens after that is all, you know, what I say, that's the fun stuff, right? That's where they dig through the business. You know, they look at the books, they look at your operations, they look at everything, the track record, you know, any sort of historical stuff that might have importance and. Effectively, what they're doing is they need to make sure this business is the way it's been represented to them, and provided it is, and they can sign off, sign the purchase agreement, and move on, right? So all that does take time. Uh, there's a lot of parties involved, right? Usually, you have it, you know, all kind of just simply dissected into three. You've got the, you know, the due diligence team, whether that's actually the buyer or if it's third party to the buyer. Uh, you've got the legal team that's working on the the formal agreement, right, and making sure that's all encompassed. Um, and then, you know, you've also got to make sure that the quality of earnings is done, right? And sometimes those are folded into one or two people, but sometimes they're three different people, right? And the more people involved, as you know, the more people that are waiting for other people to do things, right? And it just gets layered and layered and layered to the point where, I mean, yeah, you know, we we usually see things take three to, three to four or five months sometimes, even just on due diligence. It's three months alone, right? And it shouldn't be, but it, it is, right? And it depends on a lot of factors, right? It depends how, you know, how I'll say how clean the business is, right? So are you organized, right? Are your, you know, your book of records easy to decipher, right? Or is it run, is it run like a family business where you just kind of throw everything in the company and, you know, you've never really factored in selling this before. So you haven't structured in a way where it's very easy for an external party to come in, look at everything and say, oh, I could run this tomorrow, right? And the goal is if they can't run it tomorrow, well, then you can't expect them to close in 30 days because, I mean, they have no idea how to run the business. So unless it's transferable to this new person and easy, the less transferable it is usually the more time it takes, right? Just to, to decode everything. Sure. Sure. So it sounds like there's a lot
0: of rather checking the boxes, right? For sure. sure. All is what it seems to be. And under the presumption that the buyer is coming in with valid knowledge as to the state yeah. of the business, what they're buying, so on and so forth. Yeah. What, what, what exactly outside of that, though, by way of lenders, uh, investment mm. committees and this uh, you talk to me about what other parties are involved here that need their stamp of approval in the average purchase process?
1: Yeah. Well, I think the one thing you said that's really important is is it is referred to as a check the box exercise, right? I know a lot of, a lot of clients that we've worked with before, they come to us and it's, you know, I'll ask for a piece of information and right away it's, well, why do they need that? right? I, I don't want to give that to them, right? And again, the perception isn't, they sh- it's not like you're trying to hide something. It's not like they have any reason not to show them it. They just don't want to show them that, right? And it's it's one of those things where I say, look, you know, people, the process of due diligence isn't to scrutinize business, right? Not every buyer is sitting there saying, you know, rubbing their hands together saying, oh, how, what can I find, right? Or, or what's wrong with the business so I can get a lower price or maybe I can negotiate this? Like, that's not the intention, right? The, the average buyer they know what it's worth. They're using some type of fundamental valuation, and you know they just they just want to know what they're getting themselves into. So it's very much a sense of these are all the things we need, and a lot of things you give it to them. They look at it and they say, "Okay, you've showed it to us. Check or move on." Right. So it's not not everything is being scrutinized to the level that people think, and that's that's a very common misconception. Right. Sure. So I guess to answer your question in terms of, you know, what's going on, right? What are these people doing? I think, you know, the first and the most important thing once due diligence starts is, you know, everyone rushes to do what's called a quality of earnings, right? Because that is usually, we'll say, the most pivotal part of due diligence. And it's usually done right away. Um, Typically, it's about four to six weeks, depending on, again, how organized you are, how complex it is, and how fast everyone's willing to move, right? Because, Again, I mean, sometimes the buyer might only need 50 documents, and it might take a seller like three weeks to get us those 50 sure. documents, right? So at that point, you know, everyone's sitting on their hands, right? It's not like there's stuff you can do in place of it or, you know, what have you. So um, the quality of earnings is really important, and it's usually done first because if there's anything that's going to break a deal, it's it's uncovered during that process, right? And quality of earnings is effectively what they're doing is they're saying, hey, you've told us that these are the cash flows of your business, right? This is your performance levels, you know, this year, last year, maybe, you know, three years out. And the goal here, again, it's not to scrutinize, right? They're not trying to make it look worse than what you're telling them. But the goal is they need to validate the cash, right? They need to make sure that just because you're reporting X dollars, you know, to your accountant, or maybe you're not reporting X portion of dollars to your accountant, but maybe it's on your GSRs and there's a discrepancy. Again, for them, what's more important is they have to connect the dots, right? And the easier it is for them to connect the dots, the much faster that process goes, right? But as you know, the reason why quality of earnings is so important is because if the earnings are less than what you said, um, you know, obviously number one is buyers they might want a lower purchase price, right? Because if they're valuing it based on a multiple. If you're telling them you're doing a million bucks versus maybe you're only doing seven hundred thousand on a per site basis, on a per site basis, that that's a that's a material difference, sure. right? And that's where we get into issues and discrepancies, right? But on the other hand, you know that's not their goal, right? Their goal is for them to be able to take this to either investors or partners or friends and family and say, hey, this is why it's a good investment, right? Because it's doing what I think it, what I'm what I'm seeing it's doing, right? So it, again, it's not. We're not trying to scrutinize, we're trying to get people to the point where it's, you know, you're basically just turning everything over and opening it up, right? Sure. And
0: John Michael, would you say it's it's a core function and difference between who whose job is it to make sure that there are no surprises when it comes to quality of earnings? Is that not a foreseeable risk yeah. and exercise to be done by the advisor, investment bank broker beforehand?
1: Should there be surprises? In- I, I think I think I think to a degree. I mean, I, I don't like to blanket statements, but I would say probably, yes, it's your advisor's job, right? That That's the bottom line. It's, it's it, you know, at least for me, it's my job to make sure that everything that I've been marketing, representing, and telling buyers captures the whole and true picture. Whether it's pretty, whether it's not, it's got to be accurate, right? And I would rather tell someone this business isn't doing very well because the message is it's not doing very well, but here's all the things you can do to fix it. Because at least when we go into the process, everyone knows what they're getting right? We're not trying to, you know, we're not trying to sell someone a bar of gold when really it's a bar of copper, right? That's not the intent. So I would say, yes, advisor job number one, but number two, and we've seen this before is we don't know the business, right? I haven't run these car washes. I haven't seen the day-to-day operations. So, you know, it's really a partnership between the seller and their advisor to make sure that all the details are unfolded. And and when, but John Michael, when should this be had? Like,
0: Well, well, well. Before you even start a process, I think I'm comfortable going ahead and saying this should be happened. This should be had and discovered long before an engagement is even had with that advisor.
1: Yeah, I I know. Yeah, I know. I mean, especially I know that you and I have seen stuff more recently where even doing a valuation, right? You know, we we hear people that they'll, you know, someone will call in and say, "Hey, I want you to value my business," and they'll they'll pull it up on Google Maps and they'll say, "Yeah." How much are you doing in revenue? Oh, okay. Uh, Yeah, it's probably worth three to four million. Sure. I'm. I'll never be comfortable doing that. I mean, again, can you get pretty close? Maybe. But again, there's there's so many factors that could change that. Right. For example, maybe they are doing that much in revenue, but maybe they're only reporting half of it on their tax returns. Is the business still worth three to four million? Of course not. Right. So again, that's just one example. It's it's a common one, but. Um, yeah, I I think the sooner the better, right? And it's again, it's more so just to get everyone on the same page. Sure, sure. But a well-equipped advisor should be able to navigate those waters,
0: right? And not only discover what could be a potential issue or discrepancy by way of quality of earnings, environmentals, anything to forecome that that could be of issue, they should be able to not only foresee it, but also be able to give you some sort of probabilistic framing as to what kind of buyers will be accepting of this, what kind of aggression should it have on valuations, uh, what is the tangibility of all of this?
1: Yeah, yeah, and I think I think you've probably seen more examples of these than than I have, but it it's tough because it's everybody thinks that again it it's like uh you know everybody's against each other, right? But the goal is is we're on the same team, right? So you know if you're telling me your business is doing X dollars and we find out it's doing Y dollars. It's not an insult. It's not like we're trying to knock it down or, or, you know, make our job easier by trying to sell it for less money. That, that's not the goal, right? The goal is, is that we're trying to get as much as possible. The problem is, is depending on who that buyer universe is for you as a seller, some buyers might not even look at it, No, right? You might have a buyer that if if everything is represented this way, Yeah, they'll pay you that top dollar, but the moment there's anything wrong, that's it. They're out, right? And it's, again, we can't do our job effectively because if we waste time with those buyers knowing full well they won't go for it because of X, Y, and Z, we're not focusing our efforts in the right spot. It's a waste of everybody's time, right? So I think that, you know, number one, it's got to be, you know, it's got to be a joint effort. But more importantly is if, if you feel the business should be represented a different way, that does factor into the sale process. Right. If, if your business is underperforming, or if there's you know cash that's off the book, or you know if there's a manager that maybe he works for one of your other businesses but you're paying him through the car wash, all these little nuances like they're not. Are they negative? Well, no. They're sort of indifferent. Right. It's it's about identifying them, having something tangible to show that what you're saying is true. So, for example, if you have another business and they're there, awesome. Just let us know what it is. And then we can, you know, we can adjust that portion out. Right. So again, it's just, it's turning over the info, making sure things are transparent and and it's a process, right. That everyone has to work through together. But I think that again, it's, it's always focused on the negatives and people don't like to tell us everything. And the, the reality is we should know all the skeletons regardless of good or bad, because you, you can't do your job effectively if you don't know it from day one.
0: Sure. Sure. So it's both an exercise of communication as well as Conveyance, absolutely, right? and it's got to be transparent, clear, and an open book in, in many regards. And you should be able to lean on your advisor mm. to communicate it properly and convey it properly without being detrimental. Sir,
1: right. but it must be now. And it, and it's also why you know when we tell you how long a diligence process takes, the reason why our windows are so wide is because these problems always come up. Sure, and it's usually because they're addressed too late, right? And and you know it's. You know, there's probably people here that have done deals and they've said, Oh, I did a deal in two months, three months. Yeah, that happens. Right. Yeah, and I'll yeah, be the Donna. I'll be the first to sit here and say, you know, that's how I would like deals to run. Oh. But the reality is, is it's usually because we're finding out problems too late. Right. And rather than spending two months while we're marketing getting in front of these problems, right? We're starting on thirty days into diligence and the buyer's only willing to tie you up for sixty. And if you don't get them solved by the sixty day mark they're out sure so John yeah. Michael let's
0: talk a bit about the extraneous parties involved so mm. on one end we have individual buyers right and that could yep. be your single site owners your twosies and threesies family business even a family office uh, and in that respect the largest extraneous or third party involved during this diligence and closing period mm-hmm. that can very often be what everybody's
1: waiting on is the lender absolutely right absolutely and again that just going back to why is quality of earnings done first It's for lending too, just as much as it's for everything else, right? Whether it's your, if it's a private equity, if it's an investment committee, I mean, it's all treated the same way, right? Unless you're buying this business 100% cash and for whatever reason you, you have conviction that, yeah, I'll pay it, then great, it doesn't matter. But if it does matter, you know, a lot of the lenders won't look at this until either the quality of earnings is done and the results are turned over, right? And usually that has to be done by a third party or you have to get the bank to hire someone they like to work with to do it so that they can validate and and put their stamp on that it's legit. Um, And then there's also the appraisals. There's a lot that goes
0: into it. There's a lot. And it takes, just for those listening, right? Whether or not we're talking about SBA 7A loans for a single site purchase or we're talking about a 504 for a portfolio or we're talking about a more conventional senior secured credit facility for a larger portfolio. There is underwriting to be done on the lender side that can very often be done in tandem with, but ultimately end up in some sort of, if nothing else, momentary bottleneck for the overarching process of closing.
1: Absolutely. And that's the thing is it's, again, you, you compound all these external parties in the minimum timelines, and it's, you know, assuming you can do 30 days quality of earnings, you know, lending is what would you say 30 45 days sometimes oh sure 45 days for an average sba 7a loan again unless it's like a cut clean and dry and you you again you know someone again also make sure if you're getting an sba loan a lot of people aren't familiar with car washes a lot of lenders won't do car your definitionally specialty purpose vehicles, right? right and that's why if you don't have anyone just submitting the paperwork to your guy at the bank to get an SBA loan, I mean, that could, it could you could wait two, three weeks before they tell you, oof, we're not going to touch
0: this. I have to mention, if that individual, if it is an individual buyer, has any sort of personal bankruptcies, yep. if they, goodness forbid, if they've ever gone bankrupt on a government backed loan, <laughs> before, right, there are some yeah. gotchas where the process can only move as fast as the borrower and buyer in these instances yep. is providing the information to the lender. Exactly. So- so joe michael if we switch gears now to the other end of the spectrum yeah i've talked a little bit now about why this period is what it is when dealing with individual buyers Mm. how about the big guys so when we go ahead and we talk about the drivens the misters the quick quacks the even the goes the title right yeah anybody in that mix when you're talking to somebody and i Mm. think this gets brought up so very little and it should very very much more get attention from everybody is when you're talking to that individual, whether it be the head of M&A or acquisitions mm. at one of these larger companies, are they the single and sole decision maker in moving forward and closing that acquisition? Oh no,
1: God, no, I wish. That would be that would be, you know, tremendous for everyone, right? But the reality is, I mean, the best way to think of strategics is they are your typical, you know, big corporations. Sure. Right? There's red tape, there's politics, there's a department for God knows every little part of the process, right? I mean, you know, even even something as simple as, oh, you're selling them a greenfield, right? Oh, well, how, how hard could that possibly be, right? Well, you've got zoning, you've got permitting, then you have to go to the engineering department to make sure that the building is actually in line what they want, right? Then they've got to get their electricians to look at to make it roughed in properly, right? Do they have the right capacity for pay stations, cameras, you know, all the surveillance? So it, it's like, again, even something as simple as a greenfield where you're like, it's a piece of dirt, it's not right, and I think that also adds complexity because, again, as anyone knows, you know, if you had to deal with three people for three months as opposed to thirty people for for three months, it, it's not going to be three months, right? It's going to be four or five months, and and that's again, if you have someone that's cracking the whip every day on these people, and it's tough.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely, and I think one of the other things that people do not talk about enough is that. There are exogenous factors, factors outside of that of your transaction in a vacuum, especially when dealing with these larger companies, whether it's be yeah. that of the confluence of new build initiatives that they're doing, yeah. other acquisitions they're doing, their own already operating sites and the financial performance on those. There's yeah. so many variables yeah. far outside of that that is within your control yeah. that can absolutely tip the scales, reverse underwriting, have a transaction cancel. Yeah. So I think John Michael and There's a couple topics that we should probably dive deeper into in their own sort of episodes here. But in summary, what should all sellers know when it comes to receiving that very first offer, all the way to the Mm. day of closing?
1: Yeah, I think. So the short is this: as we always say, if if you're approached with an offer, it's probably not the only offer, right? That's the reality. So that's number one. So assuming that you've looked at multiple offers, and I would say that regardless of how good that you know, that number looks on a piece of paper, in isolation, it means nothing, right? Because unless you are, you know, some sort of financial engineer, and you know how these things are worth, and by all means, if you are, let us know, because we'd love to have great people that do it. But, you know, the average operator, they're not on this side of the equation, right? So it's very hard for you to look at it and say, I know with 100% certainty, this is the best possible offer in the market. So assuming you've done your diligence, you've run a process that you have multiple offers, you know, I, I think the reality is that from the point of accepting the offer, you're roughly going to have anywhere from, again, I'll be very conservative and say it's you know 60 to uh, 120 days is the, sort of the wide range. I think if you can get it done in 60 to 90 days, I think that's that's pretty good. Um, again, regardless of, of size, scope, complexity, all that sort of stuff, I think 60 to 90 days is is what everyone shoots for. So I think if you can have it closed, money in the account in 60 to 90 days, that's fantastic. I think if you dissect that further, um, you know, quality of earnings, if that can be done in the first 30 days after the LOI, it's imperative because that'll give you a sense of can they move forward or not. Um, obviously, you need to know who the buyer is and to make sure that they have the appropriate amount of equity to go alongside with it, right, and making sure they're they're well funded or they have the means to get the funding. Um, and then I think after that, it's really a matter of just making sure that you get all the documents in order and over to the buyer for review as soon as possible. Right. Or, or you have someone that's, you know, essentially I like to say quarterbacking it, right. You need a quarterback in there so that when you get the files, someone can organize, disseminate, pass on to the right people. Because as you know, you know, if I were to send document a to the head of MNA, well, he might not need it. Right. It might be some dude in a completely other department. And at that point, you're wasting precious time, right? So make sure you have the right people involved. Make sure that you have someone that's done this. um, Because if you're trying to cut down your timelines to that 60 to 90 days, then it's very difficult to do it alone, right? And we don't do it alone. We have a huge, you know, a team behind us that does it and everybody does different things. And and truthfully, it's the only way things get done, right? Is making sure you're on it, so. Sure.
0: Well, that makes complete sense, John Michael. And I think the one thing I'll leave all viewers with is uh, don't be... Mistaken in that when you're going through a closing process, after you receive that offer and decide to move forward with it, this is not an instance where it should be a blackout event by way of communication. Absolutely not. And if anything, please do lean on your advisor, your broker, your intermediary as much as as ever, right? During that closing period. As John Michael alluded to earlier, getting offers is not the difficult part. Closing deals is where it becomes difficult and that's really
1: where you have to lean on that third party to get them done. Absolutely. That That's, that's where you get the value. That's where, you know, if you're paying fees, commissions, what have you, that that's where every dollar should be earned. Right. And at that point, you know, you should be in more frequent communication with your advisor or your partner after the LOIs receive them before realistically. Right. And it could be daily. It could be many times a day. We've seen it all, but definitely make sure you have someone you can trust and make sure that they're, you know, they're on it for you because it's, you know, your job as an owner is is not to sell your business. It's to keep running it. And you should have someone else who can do it for you because they can do it faster, better, and hopefully with, you know, less of a headache. Oh, absolutely. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And again, to viewers, so I think we're going to conclude this episode here, but there's many to come to branch from this, whether it be rollover equity, non-cash consideration, uh, what you should watch out for in terms of red flags by way of buyers and intent, and how all offers are not created equal. So we'll be doing more episodes to come. Please do let us know if there's any specific topics that you'd like us to cover. And we look forward to doing more of these. Thank you for tuning in. Thanks, guys.